You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Hello, my name is Janie. Um, I'm on staff here at UPC. I work, as Mike does, in the University Ministries Department. And so I have the privilege of working here in the U District with college students. And as Mike mentioned, we have four interns on our staff. And at the end of our school year, we like to go on a retreat with our interns um, just to celebrate the time that they that they spent serving and we spent serving together. So this year, we went on a retreat to a house um, that actually is is Mike's family's house. It's up on Lummy Island, um, which is like, is that like a mile off the coast of Bellingham? It's about a mile off the coast of Bellingham. And the only way to get on or off this island is via ferry. Um, and so you can take your car on the ferry, um, but there's no other way on or off the island. So we went up to Lummi Island, and um, we had a great time, and we were headed back to Seattle. We were loaded up in the cars, and we drove up to the ferry dock, and standing there waiting for us was a Coast Guard officer. So um, we pull up to the Coast Guard and roll down the window, and he says, you know, the ferry's not working right now. So we're not going to be able to take anyone off the island, um, so you might as well just turn around and go home. So we're thinking, okay, so how long is this going to take? You know, maybe the end of the day today or tomorrow will be up and running, be able to get off the island. And so we ask, you know, how long is this going to take? And he looks at us and says, well, the estimated time is between eight days and two weeks <laughs> before this ferry's fixed. And we're like, wait, what? It's 2010. When does it ever take two, week, two weeks to fix anything? I mean, that just seemed ridiculous. Have we gone back in time or something? And as we're driving back to Mike's house, we're wondering how we ended up on the TV show Lost, stranded on this island. So we got back, and we were kind of scrambling, trying to figure out, like, how are we going to get back to Seattle? I mean, one person had a wedding that they were going to be getting married in in two weeks, and another one was going to be going on a mission trip, and we had baccalaureate, and so there's a lot of things we needed to get back for. So we're making all these phone calls, and thankfully Mike had brought his um, father or his family's fishing boat with, that has a small motor, temperamental motor. Um, and we eventually, after about four hours, we found rides that would get us from Bellingham to Seattle, and we went back and forth a few times on this um, on this boat with all of our stuff and everything. It was really interesting. But in the midst of, you know, the four hours, we also played a very highly strategized game of croquet. So we're very civilized and human. It wasn't a waste of time by any means. But I, it, it really kind of made us think, you know, what would, what would happen if somebody just said, all right, your life has to stop for two weeks, right? You're not going anywhere. You just have to stay here. That's just totally foreign to us. And, I mean, we, we probably wouldn't be able to take it if someone said, all right, your life has to stop for a day, right? But this idea of taking time to rest, just stopping our lives, is actually a command that we're given in Scripture. And so, in this summer, we're actually taking a look, for the next three weeks, we're taking a look at this idea of rest. What does it mean to be people who rest, who stop, and will take time away from our everyday lives, um, and actually take time to rest. So before we dive in, we're going to be looking at the book of um, Philippians tonight. Before we dive in, I um, just want to stop a minute and pray for God to be with us. 
Gracious God, we thank you that you are our God, that you are our God when we are busy and you are our God when we are at rest. And I pray that tonight you would be present with us here, that you would be present in the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts, and that they would be acceptable in your sight. In your holy name, amen. All right, so this book of Philippians was written to a church that the church in Philippi that Paul helped start. Um, but he hasn't been there for a couple of years. He's actually writing this letter to them in prison. And it, it's one of my favorite books of the Bible. And I think it's because even though it was written 2,000 years ago, there's a lot that it has to say to us in our modern context. It's essentially about living the Christian life and imitating Paul. Earl Palmer's commentary on Philippians is actually titled Integrity, and I think that really kind of expresses the heart of the book. Paul's concern throughout Philippians is the gospel, not its content, but the way that the gospel is actually lived out in expression in the world. So he he gives us these great words of encouragement for those that are facing opposition, especially those in the first century church. So what we're actually going to look at in Philippians is the conclusion of this letter. Um, We're going to look at Philippians chapter 4, where Paul's really kind of summing up what he's already said. And since this is a book written, a letter written to a church, why don't we as a church read these words together? So we're going to read Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. It's on page 955 in your pew Bible, if uh, you want to turn there. And... We'll stand together and read this aloud, and after we're finished, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and if you believe it, say thanks be to God. So let's stand. Starting in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise think about such things keep on doing the things they have learned and received and heard and seen in me and the god of peace will be with you this is the word of the lord please be seated so paul begins his conclusion by telling the philippians to rejoice A lot of translations actually put an exclamation point there. And I think Paul begins with this command, rejoice in the Lord, because he wants to grab the attention of the listeners and the readers of this of this poem letter. (laughs) Yeah, joy. I want that. How do I get it? Throughout the letters that Paul wrote to the new churches that he helped start, he gave advice to new Christians about what are the markers of a follower of Jesus? How can you tell? Well, for Paul, first and foremost, it's joy. The burdened, wearing black, self-flagellating, obsessed with personal piety, that picture of faith is so foreign to what Paul is communicating. 
And this joy he's given an imperative command to isn't the kind of temporary earthly joy that we might think of that has to do with circumstances, maybe like happiness. This is a joy that is connected to a relationship with God. It has to do with the presence of the Holy Spirit deep within, no matter what it is they're facing. Now, for the Philippians, they're actually facing a a hostile empire that imposes suffering on them, that wants them to worship Caesar as God. For us, 2,000 years later, we're not facing exactly the same kind of thing. The opposition to joy and peace might look a little bit different, but it got me thinking, why do we have such a hard time with joy? Why is peace and rest something that we're like, I don't really know what that feels like. Overcoming anxiety? I can tell you what that feels like. How do I find, how do we find rest in God? Why is that so difficult? Well, we're embarking on this series this summer about rest and what it means to be people who rest. Not simply people who take vacation or do a lot of sleeping, although that definitely comes into account, but what does it mean to be people who rest in God, who aren't overcome by worry and anxiety? So I've been thinking about rest the last couple of weeks and kind of thinking about our culture. And it's interesting when when we start, you know, reflecting on it because we kind of have two polar messages when it comes to peace and rest. On the one hand, we're told rest, that's not really an option. You have to pursue success. You must do whatever it is that you can in order to change the world in some way. Every idle minute is filled with some sort of productivity, like my miming, wonder what, what I'm doing there texting, um, or something on a smartphone. Um, when it comes to parenting, every moment with your child has to be a learning moment, right? We need to work hard enough to be financially secure, and then maybe we can rest, but really kind of just starts all over again. And then on the other side, you have advertisers who tell us, you need to indulge. You deserve a break today. You're worth it. You should give in to every desire that you have because you've earned it. So these are completely opposite messages that we're faced with. And and I think we receive something like 3,000 advertisements every day, something like that. And they're so entrenched in our culture, we probably don't even notice them anymore. It's no wonder that anxiety and general unhappiness are really rampant. This is a lot to live up to. Becoming anxious and feeling overwhelmed is probably the only option that we're faced with. There isn't much room for rest in this tug of war that we're faced with in what our culture tells us we need to do. And even when we're not thinking, not even when we're not doing those things, we're thinking about what we need to do or the needs that we have to fill. And actually, have you ever noticed how we kind of wear our angst and our worry as a badge of honor? We tell people, oh my gosh, things are crazy. I'm so busy, busy, busy. How am I going to keep up with all this? Remember the Sabbath. Take time to rest. It's actually one of the Ten Commandments, and we have no problem declaring how often we break it. Do we? So someone says, hey, how was your weekend? How was your time away from work? Oh man, it was crazy. Total chaos. I barely had time to sleep. I definitely didn't have time to eat. I'm almost glad to be back at work. But we would never say the same thing about breaking into the other commandments. Hey, how was, how was your time away from work? Oh, you know, the huge. It was a little crazy. Friday, I committed adultery. Saturday, I stole some stuff, killed someone. 
I'm almost ready to be back at, I'm really, yeah, glad I'm back at work because it's a little bit ridiculous. Now, I know that wouldn't really happen. Or if it did, you need to find another job. That's all I can say. But perhaps the case isn't that we're too busy, that there's too much going on in our lives. Although, probably most of us can say, yeah, that's really the truth when I look at my life. Part of the reason rest is difficult is because there's a lot going on. But I think we don't know how to recognize rest. I think we don't know what it looks like to know peace. Paul writes, rejoice. Do not worry. You can know the peace of God. And I kind of feel like, Paul, have you seen my schedule? Do you know the chaos of my days and nights? Do you know how overwhelmed and unhappy I am most of the time? I think we are conditioned to look for anxiety alone, right? Tunnel vision. Our awareness is totally focused on one thing. And even though God's presence, God's peace is around and it's available, and experiencing God's joy could be a reality... We can't see it. I have a test for all of us to take. Now, this is an awareness test, and some of you might already have taken this test um, on the Internet, or as I like to call it, the worldwide waste of time. Talk about never being idle. And if that's the case, please just don't tell your neighbor um, what the, how to take this test. So let's take a look at this awareness test. You can stop that. I love how many people, when the answer was 13, they were like, yes! It's easy to miss something that you're not looking for. This is such a great visual of example of how we can become totally focused on the thing we think we're supposed to be looking at. And we can completely miss something awesome going on, like a moonwalking bear, right, behind... If we're spending all our time watching out for what makes us worry or trying to avoid what causes anxiety, we're going to miss the moments of joy in the Lord that Paul is calling us to. We're not going to be available for anything resembling peace and rest in God. How are we supposed to know peace in our lives when the only thing that we see is anxiety and worry? Paul gives us an answer in verses 6 and 7, which we already read. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I'll be honest, whenever I hear that the answer to something is prayer, I'm a little bit jaded at the simplicity of that answer. I want it to be a little bit more challenging. Or honestly, I don't have the time, which is the point, right? But what I've begun to discover in my own life is that it's really only through the simplicity of prayer that the changes of leaning into peace instead of trusting in anxiety start to take hold in our lives. I think this is hard because we tend to bring, humans tend to bring miracle expectations to God. Right, okay, God, so here's all my worry. I wrote it all. It's on a to-do list. Just going to hand it over to you. You can hand over the peace, right? We'll act like it's kind of a bank transaction. Contentment. All right, 
right now. Let's go. Bring it on. Uh, is this what it feels like? Not exactly sure. But we are participants in this relationship that we have with God. And that includes participating in choosing to see peace. Choosing to experience the joy that God already has for us. Paul has put his finger on an important point about anxiety and peace and rest. Surrendering anxiety and discovering peace is about thousands of day-by-day, moment-by-moment decisions in our lives. And then it's about following up those decisions with practice. I have the choice of noticing the moonwalking bear or of only looking at what I perceive to be the chaos and the problems in my life because they're right in front of me, so they're really easy to notice. Paul uses his own life as an example for us. And he continues on in chapter 4, verses 10 through 13, which are some of the most famous verses in the Bible. You probably are familiar with them, especially if you're a sports fan. You've probably seen them written on a football player's eye black. Um, So let's look at chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned for me, but had no opportunity to show it. Not that I am referring to being in need, for I have learned to be content with whatever I have. I know what it is to have little, and I know what it is to have plenty. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being well-fed and of going hungry, of having plenty and of being in need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, this word content is not a common word in the New Testament. This is one of the only places it appears because it actually had more to do with the popular philosophy of the time of Stoicism. And Paul and the Philippians would have known that. So the ideal for a Stoic is to find contentment, and that is done through self-sufficiency. They would remove yourself from circumstances so that you would be able to find contentment and know Serenity. And whenever I think about the idea of serenity, I'm immediately reminded of the Seinfeld character, Frank Costanza. He had issues with anxiety, and so to calm himself down, he would say the mantra over and over again, serenity now, serenity now. Although with Frank, he would almost always express it like, serenity now, which kind of defeats the purpose of finding serenity, loses its effectiveness a lot, but The Stoic ideal of removing yourself to complete disconnection and emptiness, Paul cleverly uses this, but he flips it on its head. And his contentment looks the same outwardly. He might have serenity, but it is completely different from self-sufficiency. What we learn about contentment from what Paul writes is this. His entire life is about being a man completely centered on Christ. Paul has Christ's sufficiency. Paul mentions he knows what it is to have plenty and want. Not just want. He doesn't choose hardship in order to demonstrate contentment. But he has learned to accept whatever comes his way knowing that his life and his attitudes have nothing to do with the conditions that he finds himself in this world. Now, I don't think Paul is someone who always had a smile on his face. 
Mr. Positivity, you know, wears a t-shirt that says, I heart Roman prison. Because he's human, right? He's in prison. I'm sure suffering and pain was a part of his everyday existence. But what we can take from his message of true contentment is that Paul knows exactly who he is. He is someone who finds his strength for life from Christ. Not self-sufficiency, but Christ-sufficiency. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. We often hear that and kind of think, oh, that, that probably has something to do with, I can do impossible things through Christ, right? Like superpowers. But what Paul is communicating to the Philippians and us is that we can simply make it through every ordinary day. Whether it's an amazing day or a horrible day. Because our lives are fully centered on Christ. It's less, I can do the impossible because of Christ. And it's more, I can't do anything without Christ. Now, don't think that I'm contradicting what I said earlier, that we can choose to see joy and peace. Because what I want us to realize is that we can be people who look out for the moonwalking bear, for the joy and peace and rest that can be found in this life. We can recognize if we are able to choose peace by centering our lives on Christ on Christ and in Christ, independent of any circumstance, any worry, any anxiety that threatens to take us away. Because it's not self-sufficiency that we're seeking, it's Christ-sufficiency. What I mean to say is that we are participants in relying on Christ. God has given us so many means to receive his transforming grace. But this isn't a cheap grace. We have to make a conscious choice to allow that grace to take hold in our lives and actually change us. Paul tells the Philippians, present your requests to God. Keep on doing the things you have learned, you have seen, you have heard, and that you've received in me. Now, imitating Paul, that isn't what makes us change. That isn't what brings about the change in us. But following Paul's advice puts us in a place where God can be at work within us. God can transform us. And we will be able to focus on what we always miss when we're on our own. Reasons for joy. Moments of peace. Places of rest in our everyday lives. The central message of the gospel that I don't think gets enough play is that self-sufficiency does not exist. In verse 9, Paul says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, pleasing, commendable, worthy of praise, think about such things. Well, let's be honest. That's a tall order. Downright impossible. And when I think about the teachings of Jesus, the Beatitudes, I always smile and shake my head at how clever Jesus is. He's a pretty sharp guy. Because check out this list. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Can I be or do any of these things myself? Not likely. Can we call them sneaky? 
That's probably not not good to call Jesus sneaky. Um, I thought it would make it through without any heresies. That's okay. Um, but I love that what Jesus and Paul, what they both do by listing off these virtues, this is what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. What they do is they turn us back to Jesus. They're pushing us towards a place of total and complete surrender. Well, we can say, I cannot see peace without you. I do not know how to find rest without you. I can't even make it through the day without Jesus. And our hope is that we can see once again the Lord is near. We don't have to worry about anything. We can present our requests to God and we can know true contentment, fulfilling peace, and rest centered on the strength of the one that will sustain us, whatever circumstance comes our way. Let's pray. God, we want to rejoice in you. We want to be people who know your peace and bring that peace to the world. God, we want to rest in you. God, my prayer is that you would show us the means of receiving your grace in our lives. Show us how we might be able to see the joy that you have for us. Show us how we might be able to be your people in this world. In your name, amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.